Uh, take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy, <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, uh, and we're going to, uh, to get into the Word together this morning. We are continuing our series entitled, Why Believe? Today, the first week on Easter, we talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, we talked about why we can believe that the resurrection actually happened. Do you realize Scripture tells us that our faith hinges upon the resurrection? There are some that would say today, well, it doesn't really matter if Jesus literally rose from the dead or not. It's a spiritual thing. No, it matters. In fact, Paul makes it clear that if Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, then we're still in our sins. And so it matters. And so we talked about the, why, the reasons why we can believe from history that Jesus literally physically rose from the dead. Then last week, we, we talked about uh, why we can believe in God Himself. Why, why is it that we can uh, rationally come to the conclusion that there is a God. And so I believe that everybody here believes this. Uh, and I just simply want to help reinforce your faith because we are constantly getting messages trying to undermine our faith and tear it down. Amen? But moreover, you are going to more and more come into contact with people who, do, who do, were not raised with the assurance of Scripture. Like we would, when most of us grew up, you could say something like, well, why is homosexuality wrong? Well, because the Bible says so. And, and people would be like, oh, okay, well, you know, and they struggle with it. Today, and this is not besmirching a generation, this is simply the condition of our culture. Today you say, well, the Bible says, and they say so? Well, we have to have an answer for that. It's interesting that, <clears throat> it's interesting that um, when, I, when I put the advertisement on Facebook for this series before Easter, I had some negative comments pop up from people saying, don't you question uh, the Bible? Don't you question God? Why would you question my Jesus? And I'm thinking, I'm not questioning God. I'm trying to answer those who already are questioning God. And if we're going to live in this bubble that says, well, we can just simply say the Bible says and everybody's going to accept it, we're deluding ourselves. We have to be able to give an intelligent, rational answer to, to why we believe what we do. In fact, the, the Bible tells us very clearly that we are always to have an answer ready, to be prepared to defend and explain the faith in which we stand. Come on now. And so I want to help equip you for that. So today we're going to talk about why can we believe the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? Why can we have confidence in what the Bible tells us? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 read, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Scripture itself claims that God Himself gave it to us. Some translations word it a little differently. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And, but the, the NIV renders it all Scripture is God-breathed. This is the more literal translation from the Greek. It's not just an idea, because if we use the word inspiration, that's a little vague, right? <clears throat> because I've been inspired before and written poetry, Right? I've been inspired and went and got a frozen custard at Freddy's, right? <laughs> you know, an inspiration is when something moves us and, 
And, and yes, I believe Scripture is inspired in that way, but it is inspired and so much more. If we just simply say it's inspired, it means, it, 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 some could take it to mean that the gospel writers were simply, they were just, they had an experience. They listened to a beautiful song and thought, oh, I want to write this letter from, from God to people. And, and you can define that so loosely that it loses all authority. So literally what the Greek tells us is that all Scripture is God breathed. That God moved upon the scriptural writers. That it came from the breath of God, the mouth of God, the mind of God. Scripture itself claims that God Himself gave it to us. And so, if that is true, we can have confidence what Scripture tells us. We can have confidence in everything Scripture says. And in fact, the Bible tells us in these verses that it is Scripture that provides what we need, that it is the provision for us to equip us for every good work, for righteous living, for everything God has for us. It begins with the Scriptures, or as we believe they are, the Word of God. Amen. Can somebody shout hallelujah? So it matters. And I, how many are thankful that we have this word from God, that we have God's love letter to us, written to us to provide a way to know Him, the Word of God. Hallelujah. So that raises the question, though. Why? Why do we believe that's true? For centuries, some have attempted to discredit the Bible. I mean, for centuries, it has been... There have been opponents who have undermined its authenticity and tried to cause people to doubt its validity. So it raises the question, can we truly trust the Bible? I think most everybody here would say yes. But if you talk to those outside the church walls today, you will likely get a very different answer. Many believe, in fact, probably most believe in our culture today that we have to reject it intellectually or that we have to, in order to accept it, we have to check our brains at the door. After all, we're talking about giants and worldwide floods and, and walls that fall down when people play a trumpet and shout. We're talking about a man who claims to be the Son of God and died and then was raised from the dead. We're talking about blind people seeing and deaf people hearing and lame people getting up and walking. Don't we have to check our brains at the door to believe fables like that? That's what many in the world would tell us. And so that's the question that we want to address today. In fact, many would simply say that if we believe the Bible, we simply haven't studied it well enough. Well, I want to challenge that assumption today. Is this true? Is this a fair accusation to levy against the Bible? Or can a reasonably smart person look into the evidence and actually conclude that the Bible is not only credible, but true? Well, let's explore this. Let's talk about today about why we can have confidence and believe the Bible. So I want to explore it from a couple of different angles. First of all, let's, let's deal with some of the objections and some of the questions that people have about the Bible. Number one, what about all the different translations? Why are there so many translations of the Bible? Let's just let's take a survey real quick. How many of you have a, a, a King's English, King James Bible, like the 1611 edition? And I'm talking about with you today or that you're using today. That you're, that you main, let's put it this way, that you mainly use the 1611 King James. All right? 
How many of you mainly use the New King James? Okay. What about the NIV? Okay. The New Living Translation. All right. Uh, the um, New American Standard. All right. The Message. <laughs> All right. Um, how many of you have no idea what you're reading? Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. So, so why are there so many translations? And so here's the question that gets asked. How can I believe the Bible when there are so many different versions? How can anyone know what the Bible really says? And that's an understandable question. You may notice that I use various translations in preaching. Uh, and, And let me just lay this out there. There is not one single translation that is right or one single translation that is best. It depends on the purpose. It depends on... Well, it depends on a lot of things. And so you may, I don't just use one, and you, maybe you don't use one. In fact, I recommend you read different versions. So what is up with that? How can we know what's right? Well, see, let's go into the background a little bit. First of all, the Bible was written in basically two languages, Hebrew and Greek. There's a f- small section written in Aramaic, but most of it's Hebrew and Greek. The Old Testament was written in the language of its day, which was Hebrew. The New Testament was written in the language of its day, which is uh, uh, Koine Greek. There's different levels of Greek. Koine Greek is street-level Greek. Okay, There's high-educated Greek, and then there's low street-level Greek that you would use in everyday life. The Bible, the New Testament, is written in Koine Greek, street language. Okay, And so, um, so all of our Bibles today are translations of those original languages. And every translation is produced by a team of scholars who have studied Hebrew and Greek. So why are there so many? Well, that's actually very simple. It's, because, it's not because we don't know what the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts contain. We do. We have plenty of copies of them. It's because modern languages are a moving target. Languages are not static. Languages are constantly moving. And so the way we talk, the words we use, even the meanings of those words keep changing all the time. Let's think about English for just a minute. In the last 50 years, gay used to mean happy. Right? Wicked used to be something bad. Now it means something is good. It's wicked cool. Right? Spam used to be canned meat or something resembling meat. Now it's junk email. Right? Cool used to mean cold. Coke was a drink and not a drug. And if someone was hot, they were literally on fire. Right? And that's language that has changed just in our lifetime. This is why dictionaries are always being updated. Many dictionaries are updated every single year. So when the Bible was translated in the 1600s into English, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts were translated into the language of that day, which was King James English. The King James Bible, that, that the 1611 version that many of us still use, was not the first English Bible, and neither is it the first King James Bible. The first King James Bible is, it would be so difficult to read, you wouldn't be able to read it today. Uh, and, in fact, the first King James Bible had so many mistranslations, they had to go back and redo it. The first King James Bible misinterpreted a Hebrew word that, talked, that was used for the veil that Moses had over his face when he came off Mount Sinai. And they misinterpreted The first King James Bible said that Moses had horns when he came off the mountain. 
So please don't give me that King James is the only right one. It's a translation. It's a translation. And so that meant that there were a lot of these and thous and heretofores and other words that we don't use today or even make sense to us today because it was the language of that day in the 1600s. That's why the King James Bible is called the King James Bible. It was commissioned by King James, who was not a godly man, by the way. And so... Uh, what's, it employed what's often called King James English, but there's nothing magical or holy about the King James Bible. It's beautiful poetry. It's very Shakespearean. But we don't talk in King James English today, thankfully. My vocabulary is not that big. So this is why we, there have been so many translations since then and that there will always need to be more translations in the future. Um, <clears throat> And, and, and under, understand that it is, it is very important that we constantly review the language contained in these translations. And you would say, well, I just like using you know, something that was closer to the original languages, you know, an older translation. But here's the thing. Since the King James Version was published, there have been more manuscripts found that date earlier than the manuscripts that were used to translate the King James Version. The more modern translations are actually using more faithful manuscripts and earlier manuscripts that are more faithful to the originals. And so, so we have to understand that just because it's a translation we've had around all of our lives does not mean that it is closer to the originals. We must not make the mistake of assuming that what was, what's common in our lifetime has been common for history. Okay? So, which translation then? Should we use? That's the key question, isn't it? Oh, great. Pastor's going to tell me which one's the right one. All right. Here's the right translation to use. The one you like to read the most. You say, but some are more accurate than others. Yes, some, some try to be more literal, and some try to, what's called dynamic, uh, uh, oh, dynamic equivalence. Okay, some try to translate more literally, but it makes it harder to read in English because phrases are different. The words are constructed differently from one language to another. And the dynamic equivalence Bibles like the NIV and the New Living Translation try to make it more readable in English while conveying the main thought. In other words, some try to go word for word. Some try to go thought for thought. Either one is right because you cannot directly translate from one language to another. It's not just a matter of this word means that word. Languages are constructed differently. They, they process thought differently. They organize sentences differently. And so, so it's good to read a variety of translations to see what, to try to capture fully what the Hebrew and the Greek says. Is this all making sense so far? And so, so read the one that you can read the best. Siri, I'm not talking to you right now. All right. <laughs> and so, so, for example, the New Living Translation is written on a third grade reading level. The NIV, the New International Version, is written on an eighth grade reading level. The English Standard Version is written on a tenth grade reading level. This is part of the reason why there are different translations is that they are written at different levels to accommodate people at different stages of life and different education levels. In fact, my professor at AGTS for this last course I've been taking was one of the translators for both the New Living Translation and the New International Version. 
And so many times they have the same scholars doing both, but they are, they're going for different purposes and they have different uh, goals for each translation. So you say, well, I, just, I find it easier reading the New Living Translation, and, but I don't know if I should be doing that. Read the New Living Translation. Read it. Read the NIV. Read the ESV. Read the King James Version. Just read the Bible. Yeah. Amen? All right. So that's the first one. The second issue that arises is textual credibility. What does that mean? It means, can we trust today's Bible is accurate? In other words, if it says something, can we believe that it's true? So, what, what, what about those original Hebrew and Greek texts? Isn't it true that the Bible isn't reliable because it's so old and been copied so many times? I mean, have you ever tried to copy something and you have a misprint or you, you, misre- you invert a word or you pick a different word? And there are variations like that in some of the manuscripts, but they have so many they're able to track down where they originated and figure out which variant is right. So, but the question then is, When we talk about the writings of Paul or Moses or Peter or Jeremiah, do we really have what they wrote? Is there integrity to the text that we have now? This is actually really easy to investigate. Now, this is going to dig into a little bit of archaeology and different things, so bear with me for just a second. The integrity of any ancient writing is determined by the number of documented manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that we have to examine. In other words, if we find a dozen copies of something and we compare all of those copies, remember back then everything was handwritten, and we compare all of those copies and they agree, then we can have confidence that it's legitimate, that it's accurate. Okay? And so, for example, uh, there are nine or ten good manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic Wars in existence, the oldest of which is a copy dating about 900 years after Caesar's time. So we have a document within a century of Caesar's life. We have nine or ten good manuscripts. They are all in agreement. So there is a good uh, amount of confidence among scholars that what they have is accurate. There's also about ten existing copies of the ancient manuscripts of Plato. You've heard of Plato, right? The philosopher. And so these... Ten copies are available to study and compare. The oldest of these manuscripts is a copy dating about 1,400 years after Plato's original writings. So we have something about a century and a half away from his lifetime. Nine or ten copies, good scholarship confidence. All right? So, how does the Bible compare? Do we have nine or ten manuscripts? Do we have something within a century or two of the original writings. I mean, if we're going to have confidence in Scripture, we need to at least have as much confidence as the writings of Plato and Caesar, right? Well, there's not eight or ten good manuscripts. There are over 5,000 manuscripts. 5,000 handwritten manuscripts in the original Greek language in support of the New Testament alone, and it helps us to ensure the accuracy of its writings. Hallelujah. Many of the earliest copies are separated from the originals not by 900 years, much less 1,400 years, but by only 50 years. Within the lifetime 
of the original apostles. And there's even some, such as the Magdalene Piperus, which is thought to be written within 25 years. Here's a picture of it. This is a piece of the Magdalene Piperus. It's called that because it was discovered at um, Magdalene College at Oxford. This fragment you see is from the book of Matthew, and it dates back to within 25 years of the original document. The Old Testament is equally rich, supported by findings such as the Dead Sea Scrolls in that were found in 1947. This was an amazing document. There's, you see a picture of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls here uh, on the screen. I actually I was in San Diego for a conference and it was near the uh, Museum of Natural History uh, uh, where we were having the conference, and I found out that there was a Dead Sea Scroll exhibit the weekend I was there. And so I was able to go and actually see some of the Dead Sea Scrolls in person. They wouldn't even let you take pictures because they're so fragile that any flash photography could damage them. So I actually got to see some of this in person. It was just like reaching back in time. It was amazing. But the Dead Sea Scrolls is an amazing find. It was found in the Qumran community, uh, the same community that John the Baptist belonged to. It was found in a cave near Jerusalem, and it was so perfectly preserved. The way it was isolated, it was so dry there that it, it, it didn't get damaged by moisture or anything. And it was so perfectly preserved that it was like a field day for scholars. Found in 1947, these manuscripts were a thousand years older than any previously known Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible. A thousand years older. And it represented every Old Testament book except Esther. So we found most of the Old Testament a thousand years earlier than anything we ever had in 1947. So you see this on the screen. I mean, this, this is the Bible. This is the Old Testament. These documents probably predate Jesus himself in the flesh. It's an amazing find. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, some skeptics were like, okay, now we'll find out how much the Bible is off course. We'll find out how much it's been changed and altered through time. Now that we've got thousands of new manuscripts and they're so much closer in age to the originals, we'll see just how far off the Bible we have really is. But you know what? They didn't find that the Bible was off. In fact, they found that the Dead Sea Scrolls backed the Bible up. Instead of revealing errors, it revealed what scholars have called freakish continuity. <laughs> In fact, the integrity of the Bible was so affirmed through the Dead Sea Scrolls that many of the primary archaeologists who started off as skeptics became Christians. They just could not believe that a manuscript could be copied and recopied so many times over so many centuries and not deviate from the originals. And so they concluded that there had to be a God because there was no other explanation for this preservation. So understand this. The Bible is the most documented ancient document in all of history in terms of textual credibility. Nothing comes close to it. The next issue is historical accuracy. Did history happen the way the Bible says? In other words, we, okay, 
we're confident that what we have in the Bible is accurate to the original manuscripts, but are the original manuscripts accurate to history? If, if the Bible says that this happened, did it really happen in history? Even if it's been preserved correctly, we still have to examine this issue. Were the writers of, say, the life of Jesus, in fact, eyewitnesses to his life? Well, that's a fair question. Well, let's do something a little different. Let's actually listen to what a few of the scholars have to say about it. And we'll have a soundtrack to go along with it. So. <laughs> let's, and this, this is going to be some heady stuff, so just watch with me for just a moment. It's become evident to scholars of the first century that the Gospels were actually attempts to write biographies of Jesus. Now, not in the modern sense, because the Gospels are not particularly interested in his early years. But when it comes to Jesus' adult life and his activities, these are biographies. They're very clearly attempts by eyewitnesses to describe exactly what Jesus said and did. And the consensus of New Testament scholarship has moved in that direction. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke's Gospel begins with a prologue. It's actually one of the finest Greek sections in the whole New Testament. Uh, Luke was clearly a literary artist. Uh, but in that prologue, he points out that he has carefully investigated um, the material that he presents in the Gospels, that he's checked with eyewitness accounts, those who are actually present. If you, you read that prologue and you see this is the work of a historian. This was someone who has, has done his research. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You have to understand that people in the first century valued eyewitness testimony. And this is why, from the second century on, it was important to the early church fathers that the people who were alleged to have written the Gospels actually wrote them and that they were eyewitnesses of the things they wrote. We have actually very early attestation of the authorship of the Gospels. The early church father Papias, for example, as recorded by the church historian Eusebius, identifies Mark's Gospel as essentially the eyewitness account of, of Peter. Well, Papias was a disciple of the Apostle John, so we are only one generation removed from Jesus himself. That's a pretty close testimony and strongly suggesting that, in fact, the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts. Now, of course, it's not what you would have seen if you had a video camera there, because, after all, if you put a video camera on a street corner, even in Washington, you'd get politicians coming to and fro. You wouldn't actually have a story that would make sense. You'd have a string of random, unsorted events. That doesn't mean that none of it happened, that it's all made up. It's just to acknowledge what is blindingly obvious, that it has been edited and no doubt shaped by the needs of the community, because people tell the sort of stories that they want to tell, because this matters to us urgently here and now. Most historians date Jesus' birth between the years 7 and 4 BC, and his death no later than AD 33. Jesus' public ministry began with the choosing of his disciples and lasted approximately three years, culminating in the Passion Week and his trial and death. Scholars generally agree that the Gospel of Mark was written first sometime between the years 60 and 75 in the first century. Matthew and Luke were probably authored shortly after. 
followed by the Gospel of John. The New Testament Gospels are by far our earliest and most reliable records of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, all of the New Testament Gospels were written in the first century. Not only are they remarkably close to the events themselves, but in fact, eyewitnesses are still around. If they were passing on untruths, if they were not passing on reliable history, then we would expect um, eyewitnesses to say, wait a minute, this isn't what happened. Um, but eyewitnesses are around. Eyewitnesses could confirm what they said. All of the gospel writers either were eyewitnesses or interviewed eyewitnesses uh, to gain the information that they gained about Jesus Christ. So we have that, we have that point there that when the gospels were written, the people that the people that actually encountered Jesus were still alive. And so think about social media today. Think about something that is attested to, okay, well, this happened last week in such and such a city. Immediately you get an outcry, wait a minute, that's not what happened, right? And so in the same way, when the Gospels were written, if it, if it wasn't true, there would have been an outcry of eyewitnesses said, wait a minute, that's not the way it happened. So what we have are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Eyewitnesses wrote what they saw. So what about archaeology? Does it verify what we're told in Scripture? Well, let me throw some names out at you. Uh, Sir William Ramsey of Oxford University is one of the greatest archaeologists who ever lived. He examined the biblical record and concluded that the writers of the Bible were equal to the very greatest of historians. In fact, the archaeological evidence alone was so overwhelming that Ramsey himself became a Christian. Sir, or excuse me, Dr. William Albright of John Hopkins University declared that there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the historicity of the Bible. In other words, that it's true to history. Historian and archaeologist Joseph Free notes that to, it, to this day, even the most recent discoveries continue to produce material that confirms the Scripture at point after point. So here are some modern examples. For example, <clears throat> the book of Genesis describes Sodom and Gomorrah, which was destroyed suddenly by God for their utter abandonment to wickedness, right? The problem was no record of such places existed outside of the biblical record. So this led to a feeding frenzy among skeptics questioning the Bible's historical credibility. They said, well, look, if there had really been a Sodom and Gomorrah that had been destroyed in such a way, there would be archaeological evidence for it. And since there isn't any evidence, this proves that the Bible is flawed, right? Well, that was a fine argument until we discovered Sodom and Gomorrah in 1973. Amen. King David is another example. He's mentioned over 1,000 times in the Bible, yet until recently, no record of such a person could be found anywhere else in historical records. And again, skeptics went crazy. They said, well, if we can't find some kind of archaeological support, obviously the Bible must be wrong. Then in 1993 and 1994, take a look at what we found on the screen. This is a piece of a building from the house of David. And the inscription here that's highlighted says this is the house of David. And so in 1993 and 1994, they excavated this site in northern Israel, <coughs> a site called Tel Dan. And so it's pieces of a 3,000-year-old monument basalt stone that bore that inscription. It says, King of the House of David. But that's not all. 
A severe drought in the mid-1980s brought the Sea of Galilee down to unusually low levels. And two brothers discovered the remains of a 2,000-year-old boat that was buried in the mud along the shore. Here's a picture. This boat is significant because another attack against the Scriptures had to do with Jesus and His disciples out on the Sea of Galilee. You may wonder why something like that would come under attack. But it was because no boats like that had ever been found, much less ones that could have carried Jesus and all 12 of His disciples, uh, like the New Testament claims. So they, when they found one, this one, they found that it dated to the very time of Christ. And this was a boat that could either be rowed or sailed, and it could hold up to 15 individuals, perfectly matching the New Testament description. So when Jesus talks about being on the Sea of Galilee, it's on a boat like this. So, we could go on and on. There are many archaeological claims that we could talk about, but here's the main point. Not only has the Bible's claims been supported through archaeology, but there has never, ever been an archaeological discovery that has ever disproven a biblical claim. Hallelujah. So let's deal with one more objection. What about contradictions? Doesn't the Bible contradict itself? Don't the four accounts of Jesus in the Bible, for example, say different things about what He said or what He did? Bart Ehrman, in his book, Jesus Interrupted, tries to argue that each of the four Gospels have different views of who Jesus is. He tries to show, for example, that the crucifixion account is drastically different in each of the four Gospels because each one includes some details that the others leave out. Here's the thing. These are not contradictions. They're simply details. Each of the gospel writers has a different purpose in writing his gospel. John, for example, is writing to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke is writing to give a historical account, and he is the most in-depth of the four writers. And it's very clear from his writings that he was an educated man. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience and attempting to prove that Jesus is the Messiah they've been expecting. So each one has different purposes, so each one includes different details. And not all details are are going to um, be included in all four Gospels. Say, for example, you have four blind men that are walking through the forest, and they stumble across a dead elephant. Four blind men. None of them can see the whole thing. All they can do is feel around and try to figure out what it is from what they feel, right? So one feels of the trunk and and concludes, oh, this must be a snake. Another one feels its its massive legs and thinks, no, this is a tree that's fallen. This is I feel the trunk of the tree. Uh, another one, uh, it, it just comes up against its belly, and all it can feel is this big wall. So, no, this is a big wall. This, that's all I, can, all I can feel. And then another one runs his hands up the tusk and says, no, this is a spear. All four of them are seeing the same thing. They're only catching different details of it. And it's only when you put the four together that you begin to get a fuller picture. Wait a minute. This is what this really is. It's an elephant, right? So you got the four gospel writers. Each one has its own purpose. Each one includes different details. And when we put all four together, we get the fuller picture of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? 
So you get, you get four people that see an accident on the, on the highway, you're going to get four very different stories because they're written from four different perspectives, but they're all right. Each one just focuses on different things. Many or most of the supposed contradictions people talk about in the Bible are just different details that one account might add or, or leave out, but that's not a contradiction. Now, if those offering de- or different details contradicted each other, then sure, we could, we could talk about that, but they don't. Let me let's listen to what Lee Strobel has to say about this. One of the issues people often raise is the question of apparent contradictions between the Synoptic Gospels, where there's a parallel story. For example, uh, Matthew tells the story of two blind men being healed, whereas in Mark's account, there's only one blind man. How can we get this contradiction? The vast majority of these apparent contradictions, however, are quite easily resolved. Uh, Mark describes only one of the two uh, blind men, the one who is most prominent, obviously, or perhaps even the one who became a disciple of Jesus and became prominent in the later church. So most of these apparent contradictions are, are quite easily resolved. Had every single account given us exactly the same detail, we might have accused them of some form of collusion, of having gotten together and carefully planned out how They were always going to tell the story with the exact number of details, but then one doesn't have independent testimony at all. It's natural when you have multiple eyewitnesses to the same event, you're going to get different perspectives. And that's okay, you want that. What you're looking for is a core to the testimony that's the same, that's consistent, even though there may be some variation in the incidental details. If you're in a court of law and you have multiple witnesses come in and testify to the exact same thing, the first objection that's brought up is to say collusion. They got together, they orchestrated their testimony and their credibility is shot. So the fact that the the four gospels differ slightly on certain details doesn't take away its credibility, it adds to it. Does that make sense? And so, so it's, it's a matter of four different perspectives. So this is why the early Gospels and the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus written by those who were eyewitnesses to His life and teaching took hold. is because they were credible. And when the, accounts, uh, when the accounts written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John came out as early as 25 to 50 years after the time of Christ, people were still around who had seen and heard Christ. And so they knew that what they, they knew what was written either did or did not happen. It was not fought against. In fact, because these were so credible, it helped ignite that movement that has taken over the entire known world, and we're still reading these documents today. So, the integrity of the Bible stands up to various translations. It stands up to history. It stands up to archaeology. And it stands up to its own integrity. Since that is the case, we must take seriously what the Bible says. It holds up to all of these examinations. Therefore, we must pay attention when it claims to be God-breathed. That that means that when the Bible speaks to our lives, we can't just dismiss it and say, well, that's just an ancient document. It's a different world today. (laughs) Hebrews 4, verse 12 For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Mark Twain said, I don't have a problem with the parts of the Bible I don't understand. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. You see, we don't just read the Bible. It reads us. That is why when we read the Bible, it can change our life. The issue we must concern ourselves with is not whether or not it contradicts itself, but whether or not it contradicts us. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So here's the thing. The Bible is not just an ancient document. It is the living, uh, the, the sharp, living, powerful, God-breathed Word of the living God. And it therefore changes us. And when we read the Word of God, it goes to work inside of us. And so today, the Word of God is the standard by which our faith is measured. The Word of God is the standard by which we judge our culture. We, we, look at the word, we look at the world today and we say, well, you know, it's a new world. The times are different. We accept things we didn't used to accept. But the culture doesn't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets culture. You say, well, I, I believe something different for my life. Well, you don't get to interpret the Bible in that way. The Bible interprets you. So here's the question then. If we can have confidence in this book If the Bible contradicts our lives, what are we going to do about it? If the Bible proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God, and historically, and with historical integrity, can back that claim up as it does, then we are left with a choice to make. We cannot dismiss what we read because because it doesn't agree with our lifestyle. But here's the thing is this Bible that is so true tells us that Jesus came to set captives free. When this word comes to life in us, when it's at work in us, it can change everything in us for him. Let's stand together.